Hello and welcome to the Front Row Central podcast. I'm Martin Schneider and this week Joseph Wade and I are going to be taking on our featured movies Paddington 2, Proud Mary, and The Commuter. We'll be discussing what is a January movie. And we'll talk about some movies from 2017 that surprised us. All this plus stuff that we really love. It's all coming up on the Front Row Central podcast. Shut up and sit down. Uh, welcome to the Front Row Central Podcast, everybody. Hi, my name is Joseph Wade. I will be your co-host for this evening. Uh, hi, Martin R. Schneider. How are you tonight? I'm doing great, Joe. I uh, I just got to watch the Jaguars beat the Pittsburgh Steelers, so I'm very excited. I live in Philly, so I have to be excited that the Eagles won yesterday. So I'm feeling pretty good, Joe. I'm pretty uh, happy. Your, your court-ordered mandate uh, football win and then your actual... Uh, your actual, you're at your preferred team win, so you get it's a win-win for Marty this week. It is a um, win-win situation. I yes. might watch the Paul Giamatti film Win-Win, which is actually really good. You should watch that film. Mm. And it's a win-win-win for Marty. Yeah, four wins altogether. Wow, we're doing great <laughs> on this podcast. It's, it's, What's up, Joe? Great... How you been? Oh, um, I, I've been better, but you know what? Today I'm drinking, so I'm all right. That's um, right. That's my man. <laughs> uh, so we've got a lot to cover this week. It's been about uh, six or seven months since we've done an episode, but uh, we're not going to uh, yeah, waste a lot of time. The last one we did was uh, for Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> um, and then we never did one was... again. Um, but that's okay, because we're back now. This is episode four, of the long-awaited episode four of the Front Row Central podcast, uh, where this week, we like you know you heard the intro, we're talking about uh, January movies, and specifically uh, a couple that we saw this weekend. Um, I guess first first question on the docket, Marty. I wrote a review for Paddington Two, but I know you saw it as well. What did you think of Paddington Two? Paddington movies are just shockingly good. They are the just <laughs> they are. I, I I I hesitate to use the phrase pinnacle of cinema, but <laughs> no, I I genuinely love these movies, and it's not just like they're good for kids movies or you know. They'll be fine. You can tolerate them if your kid is watching. No, they are incredibly creative, inventive. They're heartfelt. They're genuinely funny. Uh, like I, my girlfriend and I, grown adults, and I'm I'm also kind of happy that I have a girlfriend now because before I was just a grown man going to these children's movies, sitting in the back by myself. Um, but no, the Paddington movies are genuinely good. Family movies. They're good for people of all ages. Uh, Paul King is the director of these two movies. I've never seen anything else he's done, but they're just wickedly creative. I mean, uh, he's he, he's most known, I guess, for people our age for for uh, creating the Mighty Boosh. Um, so if oh if, yeah okay. yeah, so if if you're like noticing little odd little uh, creative touches here and there, that's kind of where it comes from. Is so his. his Sort of creative credentials run run strange and deep. Um, okay, okay. He puts it to really good effect here. Like everything is like is designed like a storybook, and it's got this very, I guess, whimsical aesthetic that just really works for the look and feel of a children's film. I, I wish more movies would look the way Paddington movies look. Okay, Joe. So let's let's do a quick uh, plot recap of okay. the, of Paddington Two. 
All right. So Paddington is now living uh, in London with his new adopted family, the Browns, uh, led by Sally Hawkins as Mary and Hugh Bonneville as Henry. Henry is going through a bit of a midlife crisis. Sally is, I'm sorry, Mary is uh, hoping for a little bit of an adventure. And the kids are also going through their growing pains as they get a little bit older, too. Um, but it's in, it's done in some pretty interesting ways. Uh, but the point is that Paddington has found his way into the community, and he's a beloved member of the neighborhood for everybody except for Peter Capaldi's character, who is, uh, racist. Uh, let's just put that, like, he's, he's Yeah, the, doc, Doctor uh, Who hates bears. That's, that's what you need to know. Doctor Who hates bears. He's absolutely and... the Brexit UKIP voter, uh, stand in <laughs> for this. Yes. Uh, so... But Paddington is looking for a gift to give his aunt, uh, who is actually a bear, uh, his Aunt Lucy, on her 100th birthday. Um, and he stumbles across this wonderful uh, antique pop-up book uh, in the same antique shop that we was featured heavily in Paddington 1. Uh, so we get a little bit of continuity there. He finds this beautiful pop-up book and... He wants it very much to give to Aunt Lucy so that she can feel like she was in London. And we're treated to a beautiful sequence. Uh, I'm going to call it the Paper Mario sequence, where everything <laughs> okay. is like, it's like a cardboard pop-up book uh, tour of London with the CGI bears who are fully 3D walking through this like 2.5D London world, which I absolutely adored. Um, it's, uh, it's, it's very reminiscent of the like original Paddington, like video shorts where everything was sort of the paper cut out. And then you had your little stop motion Paddington bear, uh, going about his little adventures. Like it's kind of a direct nod to those shorts. Oh, I didn't even make, did not even make the connection. Yeah, that's absolutely it. However, there's a hitch. So Paddington wants to purchase this pop-up book, this rare one of a kind pop-up book for his aunt, uh, however, it's going to cost a lot of money, so he starts doing some odd jobs, and we get these very fun, you mentioned it in your review, little vignettes, uh, Rube Goldberg devices of Paddington doing odd jobs, like washing windows and uh, cleaning dogs and things like that, so he can earn some money. And right as he's about to purchase the book, he is foiled by Hugh Grant, who plays a character... Um, What's the character's name? Do you recall? It's a great name. Phoenix Buchanan. Phoenix Buchanan. It's it's such a wonderful name. (laughs) I absolutely loved this. Hugh Grant is amazing in this. Uh, Phoenix Buchanan, who is a failed actor. uh, Really, he's in kind of full-on Batman villain mode in this. He really kind of is, and you get sort of the backstory that, like, he's... He's sick and tired of, you know, debasing himself for dog com- dog food commercials. And you see, like, a, a flashback to one of the commercials. And he's in, like, full dog makeup and just forced to eat fancy dog food on camera. And you can see how much he hates his life whenever this is brought up, particularly by Paddington, who, who recognizes him from those dog food commercials. And he's, and he's alone. He spends a lot of this time monologuing alone in front of the mirror, but surrounded by all the costumes of all the characters he's ever played. And Hugh Grant switches accents, and so he's playing almost like a multiple personality situation. One second he's talking as Ebenezer Scrooge, the next second he's pretending he's, uh, like, uh, he's got this huge Cockney accent, and he's monologuing, and all of these characters are uh, arguing, essentially. So why did this man pick up this pop-up book? Well, 
the pop-up book turns out to have a uh, hidden treasure map inside of it. There's a uh, national treasure thing going on inside of Paddington. There are clues hidden on each of the landmarks that are in each of the pop-up pages. Uh, so he steals this book, and Paddington is framed for it. Paddington takes the fall, and he winds up going to prison. This is actually a thing that happens. Uh, so half the movie is spent with Paddington making prison friends, including uh, Brendan Gleeson as Knuckles McGinty, a hardened uh, cook who nobody messes with. Uh, and he, of course, bonds with Knuckles through the power of marmalade. And Paddington teaches him how to make marmalade in another one of those those lovely, just uh, long form scenes where Paddington, you know, goes about his business in very uh, roundabout, you know, Rue Goldbergian kind of ways. And the result is that everybody loves everything that he does, and it's just. It's a movie filled with sequences where Paddington actively tries to make the, his surroundings a better place, and then everybody appreciating the fact that he's putting in so much work. Yeah, and Joe, you mentioned this in your review. Something you just loved about this movie is the uh, the niceness, the like nice and pleasantness of this, which I noted is there without being like condescending. No, they never they never explicitly bring any of it up. It's not like it's the the main, you know, theme of the movie, even though it very much is. It's just it, Paddington's worldview is that, you know, if we're if we're kind and polite, the world will be right, and he goes about putting that into action. It's a very sort of uh, like Gandhi-esque uh, be the change you want to see in the world kind of a message. And so Paddington goes about set, making the prison, you know, bright and colorful, and he turns the the uh, cafeteria into a tea room, and he sort of sweet talks the warden into into reading the inmates a bedtime story every night, and it's all just so uh, adorable and sweet, and it's the kind of thing that you just it, it makes you want to be able to uh, put a little of your own your your own joy into the world because like that's what Paddington does. And this, it, it's brought up that Paddington has just a positive influence on everyone around him. At the same time, I feel like you can't really ignore, uh, you're doing a disservice to the film to ignore the fact that Paddington is an immigrant with a neighbor that does not trust him based on sight, who is sent to jail for a crime he did not commit uh, based on a judge who is already prejudiced against him. Uh, and then winds up leading a uh, prison, I'm not going to say uprising, but like a reform movement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's Again, it's not a thing that's ever explicitly brought up, but it's very much sort of the, the progression of the film is that um, this it's about an immigrant who is treated poorly in the eyes of the law and goes about making things right. And it's, it's just this beautiful uh, message. Um, I believe that the London Times, the headline for their review of this, was called Brexit Pursued by a Bear, um, <laughs> which is a winner for pun headline of all time. Um, and, yeah, it's it's just it's such a lovely, like, I don't want to say understated, because it is right at the forefront, uh, but it's this lovely little message, and it's also reinforced by the fact that you know, when we go through the montage that Paddington is meeting with all of his neighbors... Uh, there are, and the time that he's making friends in the prison, all over, this is not just a white version of London. There are uh, people of different races and ethnicities all over the place that Paddington is friends with that just kind of all live in the neighborhood together. 
uh, functioning quite well. And uh, it's it's very beautiful. And it's this wonderful, lovely statement um, and sentiment that I wish more movies had. And it makes me really happy that with Paddington and Paddington 2, there are two films aimed at children with these messages. Uh, the first, the message of Paddington 1 was adapting to a new country is hard. And uh, immigrants and refugees should be brought in and welcomed because they can make your life better, even if it's hard for them to adapt at first. So let's talk about Hugh Grant, though. Let's talk about Hugh Grant. Yes, please. Let's please talk about Hugh Grant. Um, um, when is the last time? When is the last time you saw Hugh Grant really go for it in a in a performance like this? Oh, I don't recall. He's uh. He's really settling into his age, I think. Between this and um, the man from Uncle, where he was kind of just the like the doddering old agent, uh, I think he's really settling into a new role. Uh, I think he knows he's no longer the like. He's still very charming, but I don't oh, think absolutely. he's. Uh, like, I'm not saying he's not. I don't know. He he does so well at going so far over the top. It just makes you wonder, like if if something has changed in Hugh Grant or if he's just finally decided to let the sort of leading man persona go and just have fun with himself. I was going to say, or maybe this was here the whole time and they just put him into like nebbish bookish leading man personas forever. And this like fountain of comedy has just been wasted for 20 years. He's very, yeah, that's entirely very possible. funny in this. He's very, very oh, funny yeah, in this. Yeah. And yeah, I really and, meant it when I said like Batman villain, kind of like Batman nineteen sixty six version, but still, I mean, <laughs> it's a it's a good concept for a comic book villain, an actor who is like possessed or embodied by all of the characters that he's ever played, and they make him commit crimes. That's a fucking Batman villain right there. It rules. Is that not really a Batman villain though? Like, have they not done that yet? I don't know. Probably. I don't know much about Batman villains, so you would know better than I, I guess. I don't know. You can uh, you can write us at Front Row Central uh, on Twitter uh, or frontrowcentral at gmail.com if you know a little bit more about comic books than we do and want to say, well, actually, there's a Batman villain that blah, 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 blah. Right. Or if you have another Batman villain that Hugh Grant would be better suited to play. Oh, man. That's what I want now. I want Hugh Grant in a Batman role. Not yeah. as Batman. Hugh Grant would be a great Alfred, though. In about 20 years, yeah. Yeah, I could see that. So that's what we've got for Paddington. Our recommend highest recommendation for Paddington. 100% um, yes. Yeah, bottom line, great message, uh, visually inventive, rich sequences that are fun, uh, and really great performances from everyone. Sally Hawkins, Brendan Gleeson, Hugh Grant, just beautiful work all around. And I, I will say there are a couple of moments in Paddington 2 that having, seen, having just seen uh, The Shape of Water about a week ago – um, are some very strange echoes. Yeah, yeah, uh, I, I have the same feeling. <laughs> um, yeah, definitely try to watch these two back to back because you'll your head will spin, or rather, don't rather don't do that. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> All right, anyway. Joe, uh, tell us about the commuter. Okay, so I, I saw the commuter last night, kind of um, uh, randomly. Not really randomly though, because. Th the main reason I saw The Commuter was because I was very impressed with the director's last film, uh, which was The Shallows, uh, which was the, the the Blake Lively goes surfing and then fights a shark movie that uh, made right. surprisingly a lot of money, but also was um, a lot better than I think anyone had any right to expect it to be. Right, and right. So I was, 
I was I was uh, curious about you know oh he's he's making a Liam Neeson action movie this time. Uh, director's name is uh, uh, Jean Colette Serra. Uh, but he's done a couple of Liam Neeson movies before this, so it's not like it's uh, a new thing for them. But uh, so the, the Commuter is basically about Liam Neeson as this uh, a retired cop who's just been re- fired from his job as an insurance salesman. He gets on his train to go home and. Uh, Vera Farmiga gives him a, uh, I guess, sort of a puzzle box type mission where she says there's $25,000 in the bathroom of this train. You need to find the one person on the train who doesn't belong and kill them before they get off the train. And so it's about Liam Neeson as this guy who's been riding this train, you know, twice a day for the last 10 years. He knows all the regulars on the train, and he knows kind of who fits in and who doesn't, and he's trying to suss out which one person doesn't belong. And it becomes this this weird thriller where you aren't sure who to trust, and you aren't sure which pe- which trusted people are safe, and which people are actually out to get you. And it's a little bit uh, xenophobic, but in the end, it... Be- <laughs> it... Did I make a pun? Just a little bit? Just a little... Just a tiny little bit, yes. Shortest I can give you on the commuter, the thing that I wrote on uh, Letterboxd, because, hey, I'm doing the Letterboxd thing now, uh, is that it's the commuter is basically taken, speed, uh, pretty much pick your, pick your favorite late-era Tony Scott film and the board game Guess Who all rolled into one. I mean, that uh, that's selling me. Uh, yeah. There's also, I'm seeing uh, supporting roles from Patrick Wilson, Jonathan Banks, Sam Neill. Like, this is a Yeah, it's actually a really really stacked cast. Uh, Patrick Wilson, I will point out, plays a cop named Alex Murphy, which is strange. Um, And it kind of just leads me down the path of thinking, like, well, what if the RoboCop remake starred Patrick Wilson? Would it have been a better movie? That would have been way better. I I mean, maybe. I don't know. I like Patrick Wilson. I think he rules. All right. So, Joe, should I see this? I say this is this is a good matinee movie. I would say see it uh, for cheap if you can. It's, okay, it's a, okay. It's a fun, dumb time at the movies. Um, yeah, sure. It's not it's not terrible, but it's not uh, the best Liam Neeson action movie. Okay, all right. I'll I'll yeah. accept that. Yeah. Final final note about the commuter is a thing that I I pointed out online last night was that there is in fact a bus stop ad for Paddington Two at the beginning of the commuter. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> right, hey, if you're, you're watching The Commuter, go see Paddington 2 instead. Go back to the part where you mentioned uh, that it was, like, mildly xenophobic. Yeah. You know, just, like, like, general, like, 24 hatred of Arabs or something along those lines. Not so much. It's more just, um, you know, it's anybody that your, your typical, um, I guess boomer aged American would kind of look look at in a funny way like uh, you're a slightly dark skinned man in a suit or the teen girl who definitely has drugs in her bag or um, just it's it's not point it's actually not pointed at any like race or um, ethnicity it's much more just like the sort of a, a sort of post 9-11 esque can you trust anybody on a train anymore kind of xenophobia okay okay so it's, so it's not yeah. just like profiling the movie i mean it kind of is but it's 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 not like hey that black guy is definitely carrying a gun it doesn't have an agenda it's just more suspicious of everyone right okay 
which I feel like is kind of the, that, that's that's the that's the mood that like white America is at right now. So it, it checks out. All right. So before we move on to our other movie, uh, Proud Mary. So Joe, you and I yes. were talking about earlier this week about uh, the month of January and what it traditionally means uh, for movies and how that's kind of just not true anymore. January and February. Um, traditionally, yeah. those movies have been thought of as like dumping grounds uh, for movies that studios don't care about uh, or that are just bad movies and they just want to get out there. Because traditionally, attendance for theaters is lower during those months. Uh, and if people are going to go to the movies, they're trying to catch up on all the Oscar stuff from last year that they've missed. So you don't get a whole lot of attendance for new movies. Uh, and, tip- and typically that means that bad movies get released in the earlier months. Uh, but that's not necessarily the case anymore. Not really, no. And they've started trying to supplement that by, you know, releasing what they kind of assume are going to be their crap franchises. Like last year we got, like, the new Resident Evil, the new um, Underworld, and the new Triple X, like, all within a week of each other in, like, late January, early February. What even a though, like, bad-ass week. <laughs> yeah, for real. Even though Triple X 3 was actually pretty good, like, it didn't bode well for, you know, action fans at, at the time. Like, it's... Not the era when, not the part of the year when you typically want to go see those kinds of movies, but they're starting to figure out that you can release a franchise film and it will do fairly well. Uh, for example, uh, John Wick 2 made, I think, over $100 million late January last year. Yeah, no, last, last year, late January gave us um, John Wick 2, uh, the Lego Batman movie, and Get Out. Hell yes. The year before yes. that, uh, Deadpool was released in February. Uh, the year before that, The Grey was released. Uh, a couple of years before that. The Grey was a January release. Uh, I think what it is, is studios are trying to take advantage of the lack of competition. Um, in That the, makes sense, yeah. Studios are trying to take advantage of the lack of competition, and it's, it's a place you can take slightly bigger risks. It's also a place where, you, like, there's still a lot of bad movies that come out during this period of time. Uh, but I don't know that the concentration of bad movies in January and February... Uh, percentage-wise, is any more or less than the concentration of bad movies that comes out for the rest of the year. No, I don't think so. I think it's, you know, like, like I said, it's sort of the, the time when they put out, you know, a, a franchise film that may or may not do well. It's the time they'll put out a, a comedy that may or may not do well. It's just, it, it's still unproven, but it's, you know, a time when they know that they'll make money on the holdovers from Christmas or their Oscar films. So they don't need to lean on movies like uh, the Chris Hemsworth fights nine 11 movie. Uh, Cause they've got their, their Oscar race movies and they've got the holdovers from the Christmas season. Like Jumanji and star Wars are still going to be playing into late January and early February. So they don't need to lean on like uh, the Winchester movie, which I'm sure will be fine and hopefully will make some money. But you know, if it doesn't, I don't think the studios are going to sweat it too much. Yeah, yeah. So what it turns into is this not necessarily dumping ground because it is a place where you're allowed to be a little bit riskier because you're not really set up to lose anything if you take a big risk on like, uh, yeah, on an unproven movie um, or unproven franchise Uh, like Deadpool, for example, uh, with a February release uh, because it was a risk because it was kind of a risk. I mean, there's still a built in franchise or still built in audience for that. But in studio terms, that was risky. But it's also uh, where you put movies that just, like, 
either no one cares about or uh, that were troubled with production uh, or that, like, only one person cares about and probably could have been better if a lot of other people had cared about it. And that's where we get with Proud Mary. So Proud Mary is what I would call a January movie. Proud Mary is a movie that has not been promoted very well. I really wanted to go and support Proud Mary, uh, and I'm not going to say that it's terrible, um, but I wanted to support it because uh, action movie with Raji P. Henson, I was all about it, uh, and it has not had a very effective uh, advertising campaign. In fact, it kind of feels like Sony almost wanted to bury this thing. Uh, the advertising for Peter Rabbit has been stronger than the advertising uh, for Proud Mary. Yeah, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to watch that, my friend. Fuck you. Yeah, but Proud Mary stars Taraji P Henson as a assassin. She's the daughter of a crime family. Uh, the head of the well, she's like the adopted daughter, uh, brought into this crime family and trained uh, by like her crime boss, who is Danny Glover, uh, and. She, in the opening scenes of the movie, kills a man that she had a hit out for, and then discovers that he has a young son who is still in the building. Uh, fast forward a year later, uh, Mary has been watching over this son, uh, whose name is Danny, uh, and Danny has fallen into uh, a life of crime himself, and he's being used kind of as a, a drug runner for a different crime family. So... In trying to intervene and fix Danny's life and uh, try to overcome some of the guilt that Mary feels for ruining this boy's life and killing his father, she inadvertently starts a war between several different crime families uh, taking over Boston. And what I thought was going to happen is that we then are treated to like a John Wick-esque just shootout where she just goes through and has to eliminate everyone. Uh, But that is not what we received. Uh, that is what we eventually get to. The film does work its way to that. But prior to that, we get this, like, checkerboard of a movie. Uh, it's just incredibly disjointed. It goes from good scene to bad scene to good scene. Uh, and when it's good, it's very, very good. But when it is bad, it is like, it is, it just falls completely flat. It feels like I'm watching a CBS drama. Uh, and a lot of that is the score, which is the most uh, generic, like, overwrought piano and synth string score for these uh, moments of forced drama between uh, Mary and uh, this child, Danny, who is now 11 or 12 at this point, I think, played by an actor named Jahi Diallo Winston, uh, who is actually very good in this. It's hard to be the kid in the action movie. Uh and he's very good in it. There's a couple of interesting twists with this kid that they play with. Uh, and I'm not... So, my frustration with this is that it feels like the only person who cares about this movie is Taraji P. Henson, who has an executive producer slot on this. And she almost would have been... We've been better off if she had just directed the thing herself. Uh, because the technical aspects of this undercut the good parts of the story the interesting themes that are in the script. Uh, it just gets undercut at all sides by technical inefficiency. 
this this really frustrating thing that maybe only I noticed, but every single establishing shot is a car pulling up to a building or driving away from a building. And it's all <laughs> And it's Boston, so all the fucking buildings look the same, so it's just brick building to a brick building, away from a brick building, to a brick building, away from it. And you could literally just set up a drinking game to it. And it's just <laughs> And so you you don't get that many action sequences to it either. It's kind of frustrating. There are the action sequences that are good are that are there are good. But then when you get to the final like moment where, by the way, yes, the full on concert version of Proud Mary by Tina Turner does play and it just kind of kicks into high gear. It feels. It f- oh, that I have. A, I have a question about that. Yeah, don't. If you, if, yeah. if you let me. Yeah. Uh, I read a news a news item the other day where um, John Fogerty said he was very disappointed with the way they used the song in the movie. Well, so was I. Well, this- <laughs> <laughs> so but was I. I don't know I. if that meant that like he was disappointed they didn't use his version, or if he saw the movie and didn't like the way it was used in the film. Like it was very unclear as to the nature of how the song appears in the movie. Well, here's the thing. Two things. Number one, Mary isn't really proud. Uh, if there's one, like, defining characteristic of Mary in the movie, it's guilt. Uh, but gu- okay. guilty Mary isn't really that... Uh... And number two, it just kind of kicks in as we, like, spin into the last act, but kind of out of nowhere. It feels un- it feels unearned. Now, the action sequence that... Mm. The action sequence that, that it accompanies is a very fun, very good action sequence. Uh, that kind of made me go, where, where was this the entire movie? But it doesn't, like, it feels like the the music was added as an afterthought. You could have basically slapped in anything. Oh. You could have slapped in anything like, in there, and it would have worked. And for like they could have they could have named this after pretty much any song and put that song in the movie and it would have had the exact same effect. And it's not like there aren't a million fucking songs with the word Mary in them, right? Right. <laughs> Oh man, that's a bummer. And so it is. A, it is a waste of that big. And, and it just it drove me nuts. Cause I was thinking, what if we had just had a bunch of like smaller, smaller ass kicking sequences that built up to the like the theme music that comes in as she like blasts through the doors in her car and just starts kicking super ass. It just it it it's such a weird twist. Not a twist. It just it comes out of nowhere. Like the music started and starts blaring, and what would have been a dramatic moment, and you go, wait, what? It's it's jarring. So, <laughs> so so you know how like most James Bond movies, there's the theme, there's like the theme song that they hire like a, a established artist to write or to perform, and then the score usually uh, will kind of write itself around whatever song that they choose. Right. You know, like a lot. Yeah. I I kind of it makes me want a version of Proud Mary where they did that, where they took the song Proud Mary and did an orchestral version of it to build up to the giant like blast of. Tina Turner at the end of the film. <laughs> oh, I mean that would have that would have had some kind of visual theme to it. Uh, the other thing is like they sell this movie um, on something that isn't there from the from the name oh. to the to the poster to the opening credit sequence. It's really like like relying heavily on this like 1970s Pam Greer black exploitation kind of feel to it, uh, mm-hmm. and that just disappears entirely. This isn't that movie. That go, that very much goes away. And I, you know, you did want to see like Taraji in the Pam Greer role. Uh, it would have been fucking great. 
that that goes away immediately. Uh, at, basically, as soon as the opening credit sequence is done. This being said, this being said, there are some interesting themes to it. Um, I find it very interesting that they kind of relate Mary trying to leave the mafia life behind uh, as akin to her basically getting out of an abusive relationship. Um, there are like questions of like bodily ownership. People talk about owning Mary just as they talk about owning uh, Danny, who was kind of like the, the essentially like the slave boy. Uh, for these crime families. There's interesting stuff to it. Uh, and I feel like if somebody had cared a little bit more about this movie, it would have been very, very good. But nobody cared as much as Taraji P. Henson did, it seems like. Even the people that were working on it. And that is a damn That's shame. That's a real shame. It's a, That's a damn shame. It's a damn shame. And you cannot tell me that... It has nothing to do with the fact that it's an action movie with a black woman in the lead role. You can't tell me that's not why it didn't get its props. I mean, it, it, that's it. Very well could have been the reason. And I, I did, I did hear like stories through the grapevine of like the studio trying to shut down Thursday night screenings for whatever reason, which kind of baffles me because like Thursday night's kind of the accepted like opening night of movies now. So why would they even bother? Yeah, but, yeah. Like, People were talking about, like, they're trying to kill this movie. Why are they trying to kill this movie? And it's there's got to be some kind of, like, internal politics going on that we don't know about yet. And I'm sure that story will come out soon enough. Yeah, it's it's really frustrating. And uh, so I, I Proud Mary is good enough that I still want you to see it. Um, okay. I still want to see it, yeah. Yeah, and you still should. But it's just there's it's it's frustrating. So that's what I'm going to call a January movie. A January movie is something that nobody cared about, so you can take a risk with it, uh, or something that like only a handful of people care for. And that's also why you get to do your your genre stuff in January, right? Much like sort of the the dying subgenre of Liam Neeson action movies, like it it's kind of been relegated to the January dustbin of the, the movie year. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, Proud Mary deserves better, but I can't. I can't, with an honest heart, give it more than, like, a B-minus. I mean, a B-minus is still above average, so I'll take it. Yeah. All right, Joe. Those are those were our featured films for this week. Uh, I believe that you wanted to talk about a movie that surprised you from last year. Oh, yes. You're absolutely right. Thank you for reminding me. <clears throat> so, uh, last weekend, uh, first weekend of 2018, my friends and I went up to Washington, D.C. Uh, for a little festival called magfest it's the music and gaming festival uh a lot of fun a lot of cool video games a lot of neat music going on but the thing that surprised me was uh one night while we my friends and i were in our room drinking and we got drunk enough that one guy was browsing his twitter feed and he came across a tweet by um the youtube personality john tron who said that the boss baby was better than blade runner 2049 and so we were all drunk enough to agree to watch The Boss Baby to see if this was true. And friends, I'm here to tell you that John Tron is wrong. The Boss Baby is <laughs> not better than Blade Runner 2049. But The Boss Baby is a very good film. Go on. <laughs> we all enjoyed it very much. Uh, and, and even after the, uh, the, the booze wore off, we all agreed that The Boss Baby was much better than it had any right to be. Because uh, I guess the film that I had pictured in my head was about this very smug baby, you know, voiced by Alec Baldwin, who very clearly was, you know, the DreamWorks face as as a character. 
um, just sort of being smug and basically being a stand-in for, you know, the president of the United States. Um, but that's that's not really what the movie is. The movie is much more about this very innocent um, cons- you know, baby trying to to fight a conspiracy against puppies and being sent to be the baby brother of this little kid with an overactive imagination who sort of renders the entire film and his world in very Looney Tunes sort of styled animation sequences and it's it's a very it's a very like bright and wacky kind of animation uh the the kind of thing that DreamWorks doesn't typically do but when they kind of let themselves just be silly it's actually a lot of fun I think the film that you would probably compare it most to would be, I guess, the, that movie Storks from a couple of years ago. No. It's, yeah, it's it's sort of uh, Andy Samberg playing a stork and all the sort of machinations of delivering babies all sort of delivered with this really strange sort of Chuck Jones style animation. And it's just it's just a joy to watch. I don't know. I don't know what else to say about it. It's Cause not I... the film that you think it is and it's just kind of animation for the for the sake of animation because i fucking love storks and you're telling me that this is like a spiritual successor to storks i would venture that this is is better than storks fuck off at a certain point it does sort of fall into the it at a certain point it does fall into the trap of just being another dreamworks movie where you can see like the third act coming a mile away but if you can if you can give yourself over to that and just it, it, accept these bizarre um action sequences for what they are like th- there's there's sequences in this film where the kid is straight up like imagining himself in a ninja film where he has to like fight um, a ninja clan of babies and it's just the most bizarre thing especially when you're drunk off your ass it's crazy but then when you look at it later and go wow they actually really did make this film it's not the film that they sold once again going back to like going back to that idea it's it's not the film they sold it's much more strange than that and i feel weird recommending it but i definitely recommend it, it the boss baby is on netflix so if you want to give it a shot i think you'll be more than surprised all right, there we go. A glowing review for Boss Baby from Joseph <laughs> Wade, who I can never trust again. Yeah. Oh, oh, come on. <laughs> have you se- have you seen some of the shit you've made me watch? I've made you watch horrible things before. So, uh, all right. So that's going to be like your 2017 surprise. Um, I'll do a yeah. 2017 surprise too. I was recently yeah, go for it. I mean, it's not necessarily a surprise to me because I had already reviewed the film and I liked it when I watched it, but I was uh, on an airplane recently and I flipped through my options for movies, uh, and one of them was the 2017 uh, romantic comedy of sorts, uh, How to Be Single, starring Dakota Johnson and Rebel Wilson. Um, And I already knew that I liked this film from when I reviewed it back in March. Uh, but I was surprised again on how much I really enjoyed it upon rewatch. Uh, and upon rewatch, some of my issues that I had back in March seemed to disappear. I didn't have an issue with Alison Bree's character as much. I actually thought she was very funny. Um, it's, it's just a good excuse for a lot of comedic talent to kind of shtick, uh, on each, around each other. That includes Alison Bree, uh, Jason Manzukos, uh, Rebel Wilson, who is I think is very funny, uh, Leslie Mann, Jake Lacey is in this movie, uh, and a special spot from Damon Wayans Jr., who gets to play this uh, 
like widower who is learning how to deal with his um with his daughter with his young daughter uh and so it's i mean it follows your basic plot like young girl uh moves to the big city breaks up with her boyfriend after college and has to learn how to be single in this big universe uh but it it takes some interesting directions it takes something that we've seen before a million times and does some neat stuff with it uh it kind of treats the like casual sex uh between friends as something that is not a huge deal there's no like two best friends who get back together here there are a few moments where um or there are moments that show that this like single life is different for different people uh the how to be single terminology applies differently to different people uh for example damon wayne's jr's whole arc is about learning to be a single father and having to share things from his life with his wife before uh, his daughter was born with her, and having to share these things. Uh, and in a very sweet and tender moment. And the other thing that got me about this movie is that it looks very good. The direction in this is good. There's actual, like, attention paid to lighting. There's uh, some strong work all around. It's a very pretty movie, and there are some creative uh, things that they do with some visuals. So all around, it's just it's strongly written, good performances, um, not like a typical uh, big girl moves to the big city rom com at all. Uh, but it even it takes its notes from those, and it doesn't necessarily badmouth them. It just shows that that framework can be used for something different. Also, I think that uh, this may be bullshit, but I think all movies are better when you're in a plane. That's definitely true, because the last movie I watched on a plane was The Legend of Tarzan, and I liked it a lot. Oh, yeah. I watched King Arthur on the other flight, the flight there. And you know what? I really liked it. I mean, something about... Wait, 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 wait. Hang on. This is very important. Charlie Hunnam, King Arthur, or Clive Owen, King Arthur? Charlie Hunnam. The guy, the guy okay, Richie, good. King Arthur. The, yeah, yeah. The good King Arthur. Okay. okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh... I don't know. I just, there's something about the... Something about the elevation gets your hormones going, puts that, uh... Puts those happiness chemicals in your bloodstream, and I'm like, yeah, I'll just enjoy these movies. I think all movies are are yeah, good on a plane. I think I think that <laughs> I could be pulling that out of my ass, but I think people have more of an emotional response to movies when they're on a plane. Maybe it's because you're cramped. Maybe it's because of the of the the elevation. Who knows? That um, lingering thought in the back of your head that this might be the last movie I ever watched, so I'd better damn well enjoy it. Right, right. I better be really happy with Despicable Me three. Because if this thing goes down, I don't want the last fucking thing I heard to be papaya banana. <laughs> Minions on the express elevator to hell. Hell yes. Uh, honestly, if that plane's going down, I'm just going to switch every single person's fucking screen to Marmaduke. Be like, welcome to hell. All right. Oh, I, I die and go to hell and Marty is going to be the facilitator of my nightmares. <laughs> welcome to the good place. Uh, okay. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> Those are our 2017 surprises. Uh, I, I think it, going back and, and revisiting some of the, the sort of lesser movies of 2017 could be uh, uh, illuminating if you'll give yourself over to it. <laughs> All right, Joe. What's your, uh, you have a recommendation for, I mean, this whole episode's been recommending stuff, but. Uh... It, it really has been, but this is kind of where we're at. Like, we're, we're still cleaning house from 2017, so this is all the shit we've been watching over the, uh, the holiday season, and we're getting it out now. 
All right, so Joe, so it's something you love right now. Not necessarily a movie, but a book or a TV show or whatever have you. What do you love um, right now? Right now, I am kind of all about uh, – I've been catching up on some history documentaries because that's kind of – when I when, in my downtime, I'm just kind of turning into a stepdad, I guess. So I'm getting into like reading about history and watching history documentaries and stuff. And I found a really good one uh-huh, on Netflix uh-huh, uh-huh. recently. Hey, Joe, how yeah. are you at building a deck? Um, well, I've got the supplies. Oh, shit. I shouldn't have said that. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, my God. Let me ask you this. Um, Let no, me ask I, you this. <laughs> if, if you're at a grocery store and the clerk is ringing up an item and it doesn't scan immediately, do you feel the urge to ask, I guess that means it's free, huh? Huh? <laughs> no, I don't even ask. I just take it because obvi- obviously they want me to have it. Uh, clearly. 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 No, I have I, – I, no joke, I have been trying to stay in a rocking chair, so that should answer that question. Um, no. Uh, How interested, interested in World in War II are you right now? How invested? Well, let me tell you. I discovered a series on Netflix this, this past week called Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States. Oh, awesome. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on board. <laughs> Uh, it was, came out in, in uh, 2013, and it, it's a 12-part series that chronicles the, um, I guess, basic, basically America's history with uh, world affairs between uh, the Spanish-American War up to the Obama years. And it's it's kind of, I don't know, it, it surprised me. It's, it's all told in uh, archival footage and narration from Oliver Stone. There's no, like, interviews with anybody or anything like that. It's all just, like you know, newsreel footage and um, old movies that sort of d- illustrate what Oliver Stone's talking about and how he, he, he explains sort of the financial um, motivations behind the wars that we fought over the years and whether or not things were done in, you know, America's best interests. And it's, it's, it's very, you know, it's very, it's done very much with Oliver Stone's personal politics in play. And once they get into like Vietnam and the Bush era, you can really see his like prejudices sort of coming to the front. But the early parts of it, where they're talking about World Wars One and Two and the Cold War, are very are very fascinating, and you get to see like you know newsreel footage of uh, Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin, and it's you know the kind of history that they don't exactly uh, play up in your traditional uh, history textbooks, and that's kind of what drew me to it. But uh, it's it's a more interesting history documentary than you would expect, especially coming from Oliver Stone. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean. She, he's America's favorite conspiracy theorist, right? Like, oh, absolutely, and you, you definitely get the sense with the JFK episode that he's really trying to restrain himself because, like, shit, I've already talked about this at ad nauseum. Let's just move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm sold uh, on that one. All right, yeah. My, so, uh, Marty, what about you? Yeah, my new my new obsession right now, um, which uh, I started watching after it won a few Golden Globes, so could. Congratulations, Golden Globes. Um, but it was actually recommended to me by our friend Clint from the show Alka Hollywood uh, is the Amazon Prime uh, series, The Marvelous Mrs. Maisel. Um, oh, okay. Which, if you've seen ads for it, does not tell you at all what the show is actually about, at least on the like newspaper and print ads. Um, or, re- or really even the homepage for it on Amazon Prime. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just shows a a girl a woman, right? Yeah, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. So the marvelous Mrs. Maisel uh, comes to us from Amy Sherman Palladino and her husband uh, Daniel Palladino, who also created Gilmore Girls, which is one of my favorite shows. Um, oh, okay, all right. And 
It is about a woman, a housewife in the year 1958, who is like an Upper East Side uh, Manhattan socialite who's very well kept. Uh, and her husband has this like dream of being a stand-up comedian, but he's not very good at it. So every couple of days they go down to the to the village and pretend to be uh, hipsters. And uh, after he has a little breakdown and admits his affair and leaves her and her whole life is breaking down, she kind of realizes, well, I'm the one who wrote all those jokes anyway. And she gets into stand-up comedy. She starts going down to the, uh, to the clubs and playing around with them and uh, essentially getting drunk and just airing her grievances with her husband and her life that is falling apart on stage and people start loving it. So she kind of becomes like a, like a proto Joan rivers. Uh, and <laughs> okay. And there, there are uh, other comedians around there. Uh, there's like a Lenny Bruce is a recurring character. And most of the time I don't like it when your show contains an actual person and you make an actual person, your mouthpiece. Uh, but number one, the guy who plays Lenny Bruce, Luke Kirby, is doing such a good Lenny Bruce impression. Uh, and number two, it, it feels right. It feels, I don't know. It feels like something that Lenny Bruce would have liked. So I'm not really upset about it. And it's just, it's incredibly funny. Um, it's got strong performances. Uh, Tony Shalhoub plays uh, Mrs. Maisel's uh, mother. I'm sorry, plays Mrs. Maisel's father. Uh, and he's got a great supporting role. It's also... The most Jewish show I've ever seen in my life. Um, okay. <laughs> all right. There are plenty of jokes about, well, cause, you know, in, in 1950s stand up comedy, we were, it was all Jews. We were the only ones who were doing it. Um, but there are just plenty of, of jokes about, uh, just Jewish socialite life in there. And it's just incredibly, it's warm. It's funny. Uh, it's, I don't know, it it leaves me feeling very good about... It just, it just leaves you with kind of a warm feeling. Uh, and uh, Rachel Brosnahan plays Midge Maisel, uh, our main character, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, and she is indeed marvelous. Uh, Alex Borstein, who, if you don't know her face, you know her voice as Lois Griffin, uh, plays kind of... Okay. Yeah. She's... Uh, she is an employee at one of the clubs who kind of becomes Midge Maisel's manager. Uh, man, they are making me really work for these M. Miss Maisel's manager yeah. might yeah. make Miss Maisel. Ma yeah, I don't know. I lost I lost the plot. You did, you did. Uh, <laughs> and she's kind of this like rough around the edges sort of butch character who is very, very funny placed against uh, Rachel Brosnahan's like super uptight uh, nervousness that what she's, which is her normal state until she gets really upset and goes on and vents her, uh, vents her grievances on stage. Uh, so it's, it's a strong, strong series. There's only eight episodes right now. I think I've watched like six of them. Uh, so yeah, Amazon prime, the marvelous Mrs. Maisel, check it out. Cool. Yeah. I've heard a couple of different people recommend that. So yeah, I got to get on that. I've had a problem with Amazon series in the past where it's just I don't think of Amazon being a place where I watch TV. So when when new shows show up on Amazon, I'm like, uh, maybe later. Like I've never I've still yet to watch Man in the High Castle. Oh, I'm never I'm uh, never going to watch kind of, that. 
that's 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 more of a personal prejudice, I guess. Like, I just need to get over myself and just watch shit on Amazon already. Yeah, I mean, eventually we're gonna get we're we're gonna get to a point where, like, in order to watch anything, we're going to have to have I don't know twelve different subscription services. Oh yeah, yeah, it's it, it's coming sooner or later, so you might as well get used to it now. Right, right. Like, I I can I can barely force myself to watch anything on Hulu, but again, that's just me. Uh, so yeah, that's uh, our personal recommendations for the week are the marvelous Mrs. Maisel and Oliver Stone's Untold History of the United States. Um, uh, Marty, uh, unless we've got anything else for this week, I think that'll uh, that'll do it for us. No, I think uh, that's it for us. You can join us next time when hopefully we'll have more of the Front Row Central crew have a full roundtable going on. But for right now, you got a stripped down episode with just me and Joe. Uh, Joe, where can people follow you on the internet? Uh, yeah, you can find me on uh, Twitter at jwadefrc, uh, and uh, hey, I host a podcast about Christmas movies called Christmas Creeps. Go check that out. I love Christmas Creeps, by the way. Marty, how about you? You can find me on the internet uh, at Twitter. I am at Schneid Remarks. That's S-C-H-N-E-I-D Remarks. Uh, in addition to this show, I've got several other podcasts you can listen to. Political Theater which uh, with Marta Russick who uh, we explore the intersections of pop culture and politics. And you can listen to me uh, on the show Not Each Other, uh, which is about gender and all of its associated bullshit. I host that with Nicole Hallberg. Uh, you can follow Front Row Central at Front Row Central uh, and for all of our reviews and our other articles. Uh, and you can send us an email, frontrowcentral at gmail.com if you've got anything you want to talk about, at us about. And uh, for next time, I can't promise when we'll do another episode, but uh, hopefully the Oscar nominations will be out by then and we can talk about that. Yeah, yeah. We'll do more episodes. That's our that's our New Year's resolution for you folks. Yes, at least at least one more episode <laughs> than we did last year. All right. Thank you for joining us. We will see you in the front row. Public domain music. Play us out. Play us out.